Hello, and welcome to the Elam Thriving Podcast. We're here to connect you with information and resources that promote thriving. Our goal is to see you and the individuals with disabilities that you support thriving together in community. In this episode, Alex Bernstein and I conclude our conversation on special education and English language learning and their intersection. I love talking about food. I could talk about it all day, but I want to shift gears back to uh, special education. So how do EL and special ed intersect? You mentioned this a little bit, but I'm just curious your thoughts. In a way that's quite messy, I would say. So um, by and large, um, and first of all, I want to preface this by saying that, you know, how, you know, if I ask you like, uh, you know, uh, describe a typical student in special education, you would say there is no typical kind. There's as many, there's as many um, uh, students receiving special education services as there are students. And, and similarly, um, within um, EL, there's no typical um, EL student. And we talked about how, um, how, you know, background, um, you know, whether uh, one, one big factor that you have to be aware of when you're talking about EL students is um, their level of education in their, um, in their country of origin, right? If they're immigrant students, like, um, you know, by and large, our students who come from India um, were educated in a British school system and, 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 you know, speak, read and write in English very well before they, they come. And not only that, um, uh, many students who have a, um, uh, who were well educated in their first language, like our, our students from Venezuela, by, by and large, are very well educated. Um, and their parents are very engaged in their education process. So they come over here um, and um, by and large, they learn very quickly and do well. So these are, I'm, I'm saying this because all these factors are, are very important in determining um, whether a, a student who is, uh, you know, identified EL um, should be appropriate for uh, receiving special education services. And, you know, the other end of the spectrum is students who receive little or no formal education in their, uh, their other country. We have students who lived in refugee camps for six, seven years, you know, before, before um, coming to the, to the U.S. So, um, you know, these issues of educational gaps, you know, interrupted education, people who come from areas that are war-torn, um, um, you know, so people could be significantly behind um, for many reasons that don't have to do with having a disability. And so uh, this is all background because um, as is a problem with um, minority students in general, uh, EL students are overrepresented in special education as, as a whole. Um, and so, you know, I talked about immigrant students um, and the reasons that they might be uh, uh, well, over-identified. Um, and uh, another category of students is um, what are called long-term ESL students. 
and um, which we use the acronym LTELS. And these students um, have been identified as uh, students who are learning English for six or more years. So we have students who um, come to us in our program who have been in English as a second language program since kindergarten or have been identified. And, you know, they've been born in the U.S. And at times they, uh, you know, present much like uh, some of the students we had in, at the alternative school or as being very sort of unmotivated and disengaged. And they continually uh, are, uh, you know, are, you know, failing to grow um, or thrive in the education system. So they have, um, they don't make sufficient gains on, you know, our, our SAT for ELs is called the access test. And they have to score above a certain threshold to leave the EL program. You know, that's a, a law in the state of Illinois. Anyway, so um, all these things, all, all these factors are in play um, when students are evaluated, right, for special education services. And so, um, um, you know, the, the law says that when you give an evaluation to a student who's a language learner, that it, they also have to be evaluated in, um, in their L1 to, to see if, um, you know, if the because the disability should hypothetically be present in both languages. But, um, you know, in exclude, exclude, uh, exclusionary criteria can be some of the things that I talked about, um, um, educational gaps or, um, um, or, or things like that, that might be other factors, but, you know, there's, there's just some real th things that are really problematic about the testing that, um, that they're, you know, in the English tests, there's, there, there are cultural biases in it. So anyway, so, um, students, I don't know, I don't know if I can say the students who shouldn't be in special education are often identified. Also, many schools don't have a robust um, EL program. And so, um, uh, and you see this a lot in middle schools and elementary schools that they will refer students for special education. They're like, this, this kid just needs, needs help. When what is, what is it, it uh, is it issue is really a language issue, not a, a, a a disability or a, or a learning disability. So um, anyway, so there are many, many students who are um, in our school, one of the biggest growing population is what we call the duly indicated students, students who are um, our special education um, and uh, what we call LEP or another acronym, ling uh, limited English proficiency. And so um, I go to all the IEP meetings and, you know, they're, they're supposed to have the cultural accommodations reflected in their IEP. They're supposed to have a language goal um, in addition to all the other, uh, other things. Um, so then there comes the, so you have these students who are identified rightly, rightly or wrongly, depending on the program or the, or the context. Um, and, um, and then you have the question of how to provide services 
uh, for these these students. And um, uh, you know, very often, and it's really unfortunate in many many programs, particularly at the high school level, the conversation is framed like is this a special education student or is this a um a language learning student you know they'll be like oh this kid was born here how can how can uh, how can he how can he or she still be learning english well but you know Very you, look at, you look at the background they've heard nothing but spanish at home they've moved 13 times they've probably you know had some I don't know, educational malpractice in terms of uh, uh, in their very formative years when they would be acquiring academic vocabulary. So it's, you know, it's very hard to explain why a student who speaks English without uh, an accent should be in, in, um, in, in English language classes. But anyway, the point being that the research is unequivocal in saying that you know the the way that these students should be served is in both special education and in english as a second uh, language courses um it it um it supports the cultural needs of the students they um they perform better and uh as you know it is it's consistent with um with least restrictive and uh we've had uh, least restrictive in environment, which you know is is the law under special education, and we've had some of our most successful students, you know, um, um, students who are um, uh, on the autism spectrum or or with um, other disabilities who you know worked in uh, one to one with a teacher assistant within the um, ESL classroom and have just had really, really wonderful experiences where the parents um, just gushed about how meaningful it was for the students to be um, educated with their, um, um, you know, peers of the same culture and um, as opposed to being sort of pulled out into special education um, classes where they might not have a similar experience. So you bring up a really great point about just the structure of schools and the personnel and how it is just so important that we properly staff and properly structure our programs, because without that, we are going to do disservice to our students. And it sounds like UDL is one of the best practices that teachers can use. Um, so how can a teacher identify if a deficit is coming from a language or cultural barrier or more of a conceptual or retention or a processing deficit? Well, the, you know, the difficult answer is that you really have to uh, figure it out on a case by case basis. And, um, you know, any, any sort of holistic assessment of a student who, who is being evaluated um, will take all those, um, considerations uh, into account and you know the um, so if the student is in you know my class the the you know the rule of thumb always is to see if there's a uh, an, an issue or problem is how well are they uh, performing compared to comparable peers same age peers with the same um, 
types of backgrounds. And if they are not making gains or, or um, you know, acquiring skills um, at the same rate as, as these commensurate peers, then, uh, you know, you work through the RTI process uh, and then uh, possibly it ends in, in referring the student for an evaluation. But again, those things that I was saying, uh, there are some exclusionary factors. Students who are recent arrival in the United States, very difficult to get evaluated because that's an inclusionary criteria. Um, and if they have um, um, educational gaps. Um, so, you know, we have many students who after fifth grade, the grandparents are like, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna work on the ranch. And so then, you know, they, they come to, to school with us and they haven't been in school since, since they were 10. And, um, you know, uh, they can't write a sentence in English or Spanish. And, um, you know, uh, it's, it's really tough, but that student would not be uh, on the face of it appropriate to be referred for a special education evaluation. You don't even think about stuff like that, right? Where we don't know what students were getting. We don't know. So it's important to build that relationship like you've mentioned. So going back to teachers, teachers are trained to use data and analyze data. And we're all data heavy right now because that seems to be a huge push since probably uh, ESSA and NCLB came into play. But certain measures don't seem to be as useful. Like I, like you mentioned with the access test and you've had students who have been identified in ESL since kindergarten. It doesn't seem to be a uh, successful or an effective measure of student performance. I would imagine using a, something like a curriculum-based measurement where you're checking student fluency, probably not gonna be the greatest gauge either. What kind of uh, data would a teacher go off of when assessing and evaluating a student? Um, well, you know, again, I think I spoke of, uh, first of all, I'm, I'm sort of very skeptical about, uh, you know, how reductive education has become. And I think, uh, you know, uh, when you sent me the question list, you talked about CBMs and other me measures that we use to evaluate fluency. And I think probably uh, all of your listeners know about some of the uh, limitations and advantages of uh, both of, of using tools like that. So, you know, these tools are great because they demonstrate growth, but they're, they suck because they're really reductive. And, um, you know, just uh, for example, with CBMs, just because a kid can read with fluency doesn't mean they understand what they're reading. Um, and so, you know, um, I, uh, we have a, a built-in test that they take yearly, which is the access test. So you have uh, built in a way of, um, of looking at that. There are other software tools that are becoming very popular for EL. One of the um, ones that sort of has a built in curriculum and with assessments, sort of, you know, like, uh, uh, what, what's the one that they used to reading plus was that the one they used to use when we worked together? Um, but, you know, there's a number of curriculums with sort of these built-in assessments. No, it was called, um, anyway, I can't, I can't remember the name of the, the curriculum. Um, but uh, the point being that, um, you know, you have to just use these measures that demonstrate growth in moderation. 
um, because um, despite the ease of tracking student growth, a lot of the times when they're attached to a curriculum, like particularly Reading Plus is one that we've tried to use, it's just like very uh, disengaging, particularly for students who are at risk or are struggling. Um, um, but, you know, I mean, you can monitor uh, the growth of ELs in, in the same way that you would any student who's progressing in English through their acquisition of a vocabulary, sentence writing, and paragraph writing, um, and uh, yeah, any any measure that would that is used in my experience in special education would be effective. But with any else, there's a real focus on on what's called academic vocabulary, and academic vocabulary is, um, um, you know. Um, vocabulary that is used across the academic areas, um, English, um, science, mathematics, you know, like equate and um, hypothesis and words like that, because uh, while this, the, these students are going to have a lot of deficits in these academic vocabulary, so any assessment and any curriculum um, should be heavily focused on helping the students develop those skills. It's going to drive me crazy that we can't think of the name, but I will find it regardless. I want to say it was like reading one, two, three, read, read 180. That's read 180. And I've, and I've since used it when I went to a different district. Ah, man. Yeah, exactly. Like that kind of program is great for kids who are growing up in America and are fluent in English. And it's like, it's very, yeah, very prescriptive. And it's like, you can sprinkle it any teacher can do it but is it really the best thing for learning and i think that's a big argument in education right now that we're facing is like what is learning and how do we better access it like what is our ultimate goal to have test scores and you know these data points that are great or do we want to do actual learning so and yeah go ahead no i was just gonna say that is one of the great advantages about covid uh not or advantage, but uh, maybe a positive effect for anyone who thought you were just going to throw kids in front of computers and they would be taught by software uh, and that, you know, everything would be great. I think that any illusions about that have been forever dispelled. Um, so, you know, again, uh, uh, as was always said when I was in special education, you know, that um, good curriculum is good curriculum for anyone at any level and is individualized and is um, uh, scaffolded and um, as and is appropriately difficult uh, and challenging for the for the students so um, yeah the the work of doing that is at the heart of education is evaluating how much you can push your your students and um, without losing them so that they grow as, as quickly as they can. Absolutely. And it's one of those things where you're never going to be out of a job because we cannot be replaced. A computer can't do what a human being can do to take time to learn about food and culture and a student's strengths and a student's family background. And computers can only do what they're programmed to do and spit out content. So great point. And I'm just so grateful to have the conversation about what matters most? It's learning and it's getting to know students and giving them what they truly need versus how can we develop a program and set it and forget it kind of thing, right? Yeah. And I, you know, I do, I, I, 
there's so much emphasis in the world of special education because of the nature of the IEP process and the goal setting process um, to collect data as uh, as part of the instructional process and and you know I, I I do believe that assessment is a very important part of the the teaching process but um yeah I just don't to, to become uh, overly reliant on it is uh, can be harmful to students absolutely we're not here for the numbers thankfully we're not in sales and we don't have to outdo our numbers from last quarter we're always looking to help students out so it's a really encouraging thing that we don't have performance-based evaluations for teachers in Illinois. I mean, I know other states are starting to go that way, but I just really appreciate the strength of how our system is here, where we have a lot more autonomy in our classrooms versus just trying to hit numbers, because those could be doctored. And Although, you know, I'm sympathetic to people who do. I, you know, I, uh, I think that my particular district is good, but I still feel a lot of pressure when that when those access scores come out, you know, I, I know exactly how they're used to uh, to formulate um, our school report card, and I know how that calculation is done, and I know how the the you know the principals in the past have gone over that list and and highlighted the kids who got us the points and those who didn't, and and you know, so um, um, it's something that that is inescapable and that we all have to be aware of too. Very true. Very true. We could talk all day. We'll have to schedule another one of these in the near future. But I do want to ask the question before we go. What is it that helps you thrive instead of just survive in the work that you do? You know, the, the, this work has, has um, even though the kids have really suffered a lot during the time of, of COVID, um, I feel that um, I sort of guiltily have uh, thrive because uh, the work is um, is so fulfilling and so necessary, you know, right now that the students need so much help. Um, and um, what helps me to thrive is just understanding the systems. And we talked about how you can't educate uh, a student and um, who's in an English language program without an understanding of the, uh, the community, the immigrant community or not that they live in in the United States, what the, the family's financial situation is, um, you know, is this immigrant student um, living with relatives who may or may not actually be relatives? And if um, so, are they going to have pressure at some point to contribute financially to the household um, and of course all the geopolitical factors that figure into the situations of of immigrants their their documentation status and all those those fears the the um, um, you know the the uh, racism and anti-immigrant sentiment that they um, face not just in our wider culture but at our schools um, because we know that um, um, our teachers are, are uh, subjecting our students to prejudicial uh, behavior. So um, it's very, very gratifying. And I find that I thrive when I understand all of the systems 
um, that are impacting our students, not just what's happening within our, uh, our classes, because, um, uh, you know, in every situation that can seem like an obstacle is really just a case study. You know, I, I have a given student and what do I end up learning about? Immigration law, um, uh, services uh, for homeless students in McKinney-Vento, um, how um, EL students, much like special education students, um, by and large, have lower attendance than other students and how that impacts them. I learned how to get students' fees waived, learned about how to get adult education classes for, for parents and, and families, um, the, the, um, the systems that affect our students are are wide, um, they're broad and deep. And, uh, you know, we, we live in the 21st century, we have to understand about the, the cultural, the social um, um, uh, systems that are impacting our students every day and political. Um, and, uh, you know, teaching is not an apolitical act, I think, to, to put ourselves in the mix um, and be vulnerable and um, understand um, how to help our students uh, for the 21st century teacher involves a lot of things that happen, not just when you're in that room with your students and you close the door. Wow. Alex, thank you. This was an immensely gratifying and satisfying conversation. And we got to talk a lot about really deep, meaningful stuff and I'm just thankful for your participation in this conversation. So thank you um, for the listeners. If you have questions, please, or questions or comments, email them to elamthriving at elamcs.org. Um, thank you, Alex. I hope you have a great rest of the day. I really appreciate you coming on today. Thanks, Nick. It was really a great pleasure to talk to you. And um, yeah, thank you again for inviting me. really appreciate it. Okay. Bye. Take care. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to the Elam Thriving Podcast. If you like what you heard, hit subscribe. It would mean a lot to us if you left some feedback. You can learn more about us at our website, elamcs.org. Thanks again for listening.